Romans chapter 9, we'll be beginning in verse 1, going down through verse 5, uh, will be our focus for this morning's message, kind of an introduction to these chapters that are upcoming, and uh, we'll explain a little bit more about it as we go along. But I'd turn your attention, if you would, to Romans chapter 9, Paul writing to the church at Rome here, beginning in v- chapter 9 and verse 1. The Bible says, I say the truth in Christ, and I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Let's bow our heads, if you would. Father, we come before you with thankful hearts for your grace and for your mercy and just the goodness that you have shown us. I ask now that as we gather around your word that you would help us to have open hearts and open minds, Lord, that you would Show us your glory, you would show us your majesty, and show us your love that you have toward us, and that we would have a heart to consider those around us who do not know you, Lord, and our place in all of this. I ask for grace and for mercy as I speak, that you might be heard above everything else. I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. So it's been a while since we've been in Romans. I think it was about the end of September when we were last here. And uh, we've spent up to now probably, I think, a couple years going, give or take, um, going through the book of Romans. And I pray it's been helpful. It's an awesome book, um, very deep, very wide, and uh, speaks to just about everything that we could face. And quite frankly, I'm glad to be back. We've done three months solid of topical messages, and that for me is a little bit more difficult than knowing what's coming, because there's times when you think and you have to pray and pray, well, what do I talk about next week? (laughs) What's going to be helpful? Where do we go? I'm more comfortable and more at home just letting the Word speak for itself, because as I've said time and time again, things come up when they need to, and the Lord has a way of working that, and I look forward to doing that especially with some of the the topics we're going to be talking about. Uh, The theme for this year is real Christianity. Well, some of these things are going to hit that right on the head. What it means to be who we are and some things that come along with that. So I'm looking forward to that. The title of this morning's message is an introduction to Romans 9 to 11 uh, because we're going to introduce some things. It could very well be Paul's broken heart because we're going to talk about that as well. But there are some vital principles that we need to begin to address here, and we're going to spend some time on for the coming weeks. Because as we take our first steps in Romans 9, we're coming to a very interesting part of the Scripture, a very important part of Scripture. Romans 9 through 11 has garnered a lot of discussion, a lot of debate. People fight about this passage of Scripture. And to be quite honest, it's probably one of the most avoided places of Scripture. I have known preachers who will go Romans 1 through 8, skip to Romans 12, and keep going. 
There's a joke that you better be careful preaching Romans 9 through 11. You might become a Calvinist. And so people are actually scared of these three chapters. Some even say that it's kind of out of place in the Bible because you could go from Romans chapter 8 and the end verse and go to Romans chapter 12 and the first verse and be just fine. And it picks right up. And it's almost like Paul is putting these in parentheses and saying something. Let me just say, you'll find that Paul is not breaking his train of thought. No, he's continuing on with it. And he's laying down some very important doctrinal principles. And it's not to be feared. We're not to be scared of Scripture. Now, there's a reason some people avoid it. These are not easy. Do you remember what Peter says as he writes about Paul? There's some things that Paul writes that's hard to understand. This is one of them. But we're never to be afraid of Scripture ever. And so we'll face these head on and we'll see what the Bible says. Paul has already laid out quite a lot for us. We saw salvation by grace in Romans 1-5. through The wonder of salvation. We've, we've seen the wonder of baptism and this new life that we walk in in Romans 6. And in Romans 7 and 8, we, we see the, the, uh, the, the filling of the Spirit, the leading of the Spirit in our lives and, and how we battle the flesh. And the Spirit is stronger than that. And it's going to protect us and it's going to lead us closer to God. And as we come to the text, Paul is going to continue on in that thinking, okay? He's going to handle some pretty important subjects that we, we need to be aware of. He's going to talk about Israel, the current state of Israel. He's going to talk about election and predestination and the sovereignty of God. And we need to know what the Bible says about these things. And so we're going to let the Bible speak, not man. Because man's thinking, man's view can get us all messed up. We let the Bible speak. A misunderstanding of these three chapters has led to much error. Namely things like replacement theology or Calvinism. I know, big words for a Sunday morning, boring, yawn. What does that mean to me? What does this have to do with my everyday life? A lot, actually, whether we know it or not. Because this ideology is really popular right now. If I could, uh, well, particularly Calvinism. Now, if I could sum that up in one statement, it is the belief that God elects some people to be saved and the rest not. God says, you and you and you are going to be saved and the rest cannot be saved. You hear the term Reformed theology, Reformed theology? That's what this is speaking of. Reformed churches teach this. And it's everywhere right now. It seems to be like the latest trend. I remember some trends, at least in my uh, short time on this earth. I remember in the mid-90s, approaching 2000, was the growth of the megachurch and the kind of the Jesus movement resurgence. And that was everywhere. Well, now I'm seeing here in, in the past five years or so a resurgence, a, a taking off of this Reformed theology, and churches are, are changing their names 
to include this in there. It's everywhere. And it's really appealing. Because the people that are the outspoken ones for us, they sound so high and lofty and it sounds so intellectually good. Let me just quote one of their authors. A lost man can no more respond to the Gospel than a dead man can respond to a call to supper. (laughs) I don't know about you, but that just sounds cool to me. Wow, what a way to put it. Things like that is appealing to many and many are kind of following after this. And you've got big names with best-selling books and big groups, and all of it can become very appealing. It it can become very luring to people. And I speak from experience on this. There was a time, albeit very short, that I gave some thought to this, considered it, and thought, you know what, what if this is true? Drawn by it, appealed to by it. I thank God His Word is simple and clear. And He shows us what's true. Listen, I I said it once, I say it again. Be careful reading after man. Be careful basing what you believe on commentaries or things of that nature because it can take you actually at times away from the Scripture. And what snapped me out of it was the simplicity of Scripture. The Bible says what we need to know Clearly, plainly, and in a way that we can understand. John 3.16 is what you need to know. For for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a key. And it says it simply that a child can understand. I say that for this reason. I'm not building a straw man or speaking like far away. I have experience with this. I know the ins and outs of this. I'm familiar with it, and I believe it to be error. I believe it to be false. A dangerous error. Anytime in my belief, anytime in your belief, anytime in anyone's belief that we have to ignore plain Scripture or we have to explain away or qualify Scripture, we need to double-check ourselves. And I find with this way of thinking, you have to do that constantly. So, we're going to get to that beginning next week as we get farther in Romans. We're actually going to take some Wednesday nights and explain some technical aspects of it. So, I just ask that you stick with me. Let's be in our place. Let's study and pray with an open mind because... Once we begin to look into this subject, you see the depth of God's goodness, the depth of His sovereignty, the depth of His grace. And I think it just helps us to appreciate God more. I want to start here first, though. I want to focus on what Paul has to say here in these first five verses. So we're going to lay a little bit of foundation for some coming messages, and we're also going to give us some points to consider today. So sound okay? All right, let's look. First thing I'd like to look at is uh, the burden of Paul for Israel. We find that in verse number one. The burden of Paul for Israel. I say the truth in Christ, and I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. What we see here 
is Paul opening his heart and letting it show. Think about all we've read up till now. Paul is going on praising the, the wonders of the grace of God. Salvation is not of works. We don't deserve it. We've all sinned, but we can all be justified freely by grace through Christ's blood. The wonders of, of the salvation that God gives in comparison to our depravity, which we saw in Romans 1 and 2, but God is so gracious, He saves us. He's praising the wonder and the beauty of, of the relationship that Christ calls us to, to, to be baptized, put off that old man, and now we're walking in a newness of life, led by, filled by His Holy Spirit. And he ends chapter 8 saying, man, if God before us, who can be against us? Man, people can say what they want, they can do what they want, they will not conquer us. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. And then he stops. Heartbroken. It's almost as if you can hear his tears as he weeps for those who missed it. Those who could have had all of this, yet rejected. And he's speaking of Israel. Now, he's careful to make known. He's not exaggerating. He says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. Paul never uses that phrase lightly. I'm telling you the truth. These are where my, my heart is. My conscience is clear. The Holy Spirit bears witness to that, that this is something he feels at his very core. This is not some superficial kind of emotional thing. Oh, poor Israel. No, this is down deep at his very core. And it's a heavy spiritual burden that he has. Verse 2, he says, I have a great heaviness, literally, I'm mega sad, and a continual sorrow, a, an unending consuming pain, an unending grief. This is weighing heavy on Paul. It's not some Sunday morning conviction, like you hear a, a message and, oh, that's really bad, and it kind of hits your heart, and then you go on about your business. This is always there with Paul. Always on his mind, always weighing at his heart. So much so that he takes it a step further in verse 3. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ. Now, that word accursed is an important word. It's a pretty big word. I don't know if you've heard it before. It's actually used in its Greek form in Scripture. It's anathema. Anathema. It depends on how you pronounce it. Let me give you some perspective of how Paul uses it. In 1 Corinthians 16, he says, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Galatians chapter 1, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that you which have than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. This is a big word. It means to be devoted to perdition or devoted to destruction. It means to be damned by God. You understand what Paul's saying? how heavy this burden is, how broken his heart is for Israel. Now, he knows it's not possible, but he's saying, if it were possible, that's why he says, I could wish. 
If it was possible, he would give up this sweet and wonderful salvation, his place with Jesus, and he would give himself to be damned eternally to hell if Israel could be saved. Now Paul knows how this works. He knows that can't happen, but this is his raw emotion pouring out. This is his heart pouring out. It's somebody who understands the desperate condition of those who are without God. Now, we see an example of this in Moses, too, actually. It's when he goes to the mountain and he's getting the law of God, and he goes up and he's up there for 40 days, and then down there the golden calf happens. You familiar with that story? Humans are so dumb. They just watched all that God did in Israel. They came through the Red Sea. They come to a mountain and it's 40 days. Well, I don't know where he went. Make us a God we can worship here. And we do that stuff all the time, don't we? They make a golden calf, and Aaron is part of it too. Sometimes preachers can be just as dumb. <laughs> but they do that, and God says, hey, look, look what your people's doing. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses says this in Exodus 32. He kind of steps in the way and says, hold on, God, hold on. You brought him out. You really want to do this? And here's what he says in Exodus 32, 32. He says, yet now, if thou wilt, forgive their sin. And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Don't move in judgment against it. Take me. Take me in their place. You see that kind of heart that's there? That's a heart that Paul has. That's a part that Moses has. I don't think this is a exaggeration i think this is actually a true christ-like spirit because did not jesus do exactly the same thing for us galatians 3 says christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us you see as he was on the way to the cross he took upon himself all of our sins In the Garden of Gethsemane, he struggles with it. As the sin of the world, as every bad thought, every bad thing, every bad word, every bad action that not only you and I, but all of humanity has ever done was laid upon him, he began to bear that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, He who knew no sin became sin. I don't think our human minds can ever quite understand that. The sinless, high, and holy one of heaven became sin. He became a curse for us. And He took that sin to the cross, and there He shed His blood as the atonement for it. He bore all of the wrath of God for our sin, for my sin. On the cross, He says, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? It wasn't because of the whipping. It wasn't because of the torn, shredded flesh. It wasn't because of the nails in His hands that God turned away. It was because of my sin, your sin. Christ gave His life in place of yours as the sacrifice for your sins. This is a Christ-like spirit that Paul has. Now, can I ask you this? When, if ever... Have you had a burden for somebody else like this? Maybe you haven't said the exact same words that Paul or Moses did. 
But when's the last time you had a burden for somebody like this? Where you truly pondered someone's eternal situation and it broke your heart? For those in your life that you know are lost, have you pondered that? They are a heartbeat away from hell. Or those who have walked away. Maybe it's family, maybe it's friends, maybe it's co-workers. When's the last time that you or I have had a burden like that? You see, Paul wasn't too busy to care about his fellow men. You know, I got tents to make, I got schedules to keep, and, you know, I'm just really busy. I got to get moving on with my day. No, no. Paul says, I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart for those who do not know Christ. Paul wasn't too busy. Paul's heart wasn't too hard. You know how many times Israel had tried to kill him? You know how many times they had rejected him by the time Romans is written? Multiple times. He didn't say pooey on them, good riddance. He says, no, my heart is broken for them. He didn't shrug his shoulders and say, meh, what are you going to do? No. Maybe we need to get back to that kind of heart. Listen, that's the problem. That's the situation we are in because of this this superficial pep rally, concert, health, wealth, prosperity brand of Christianity that's out there. That's the effect it has had on us. When you come to church, hey, what can you do for me? I like this, I like that, I don't like that. Why don't you change it and I'll stay? Were you more worried about self? Were you more worried about what can God give me? How can God bless me? Rather than lost and dying souls that are on their way to hell. Maybe we need some more broken hearts for the lost condition of those around us. There's too much me in our Christianity that's not real. We die to self. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, Paul says. And if we're going to have a true Christ-like spirit, where our heart will be broken for the lost, I am come to seek and save that which is lost. Paul says, if I could throw it all away, I would, if some would get saved. If some would be restored. Perhaps we ought to take note this morning of that. So Paul's burden is evident. And it hits him hard. Not just because they're kinsmen or countrymen or his nation. As verse 3 says. But it's a little bit deeper. Here's the second thing I want to focus on this this morning. Second thing is the blessing of God on Israel. We see the burden of Paul for Israel, but he goes on to explain the blessing of God on Israel. Look in verse 4. Who are Israelites? That's who he's talking about, the nation of Israel. To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? Whose are the fathers and of whom concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Israel has such a rich history It's right here. You can read it in the Old Testament. You understand that? The Old Testament is about Israel. 
It's a history book on Israel's history. If you look in the Old Testament, you're not going to find the church there. It's Israel. There's no Christians per se. There are believers. That came about in the New Testament as Christ came. Types are all over, but it's mainly dealing with God's covenant people, Israel. And it's a rich history. Even recent history shows them as distinguished people. In almost every area, whether it be science or arts or music or business or education or leadership, Israel has produced the lion's share of successful people, of geniuses. They're a nation that experiences God's blessings. And Paul outlines the important ones here. He says first the adoption, right? To who, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption. In Exodus chapter 4, when God is speaking to Moses to tell Pharaoh to let them go, he says, tell Pharaoh, tell Pharaoh, let Israel, my son, go. He calls the nation as his own child. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses says this, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. He hath chosen thee to be a special people to himself. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you refused of all people, but because the Lord loved you. You see, they are adopted, chosen by God's love. It says they have glory. And it's not talking about their own glory, it's God's glory. Multiple times in the Scripture, in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and both First and Second Samuel, I believe, and other places, you, you read the word, uh, you read the phrase, the glory of God filled the tabernacle or the glory of God filled the temple. You see, in the tabernacle and in the temple was the ark and it had the mercy seat, the very dwelling place of God. What other nation could say that? None. They had the dwelling place of God with them, and therefore they had the glory of God. He goes on to say they have the covenants. Israel is descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you know what Jacob's name was changed to? Israel. Before there was a nation. They are descendants of these people to whom God gave covenants. They have the service of God. They get to serve in the temple. They have the law. No other nation could say that. They have the promises, all the promises of blessing and of the Messiah and of the kingdom. And he says in the end of verse, in the middle of verse 5, and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came. You see, it's not a coincidence that Jesus was born an Israelite. It's fulfillment of promise. You understand that? It might destroy some of your images of Jesus. He's not a effeminate looking white hippie guy. He's a Jewish man. Just a normal Jewish man. And that's not by coincidence. That's fulfillment of promises. He was born as one of God's covenant people. Such a history. Such a blessed history. And Paul knew this firsthand. That's where he came from. That's who he is. And when he came to faith on the Damascus Road, there was a connection for him. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee, and he knew the law, had probably memorized large portions of it. He even goes as far to say as 
He kept the righteousness of the law as blameless. Now, listen, you have to be really good to say that. Or very arrogant, which was probably both. (laughs) Both true on Paul's case in his former life when he was Saul of Tarsus. But he had all of this history, all of this knowledge. He comes to faith on the Damascus road, receives the call of God, and he makes the connection. And you know what he realizes? All of that points to Christ. It all points to Jesus. It's all about Him and this new covenant that He brings. He sees all of this beautiful history, the seamless transition into the two, and just this rich, blessed position that Israel could have. But it's not just for them. Let me me say this and pause here and say this. This may not be our history physically. I don't know of anyone in here that's Jewish. Um, Not the same as us like being American, right? I'm born an American. So I can look back through history and George Washington is my history. Abraham Lincoln is my history. The Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement and all kind of things that we, these big things we look back in, these great and wonderful times of of, of, of our history, it's mine because I'm an American. I'm proud of that. I'm proud to be part of this nation. I'm, I'm proud to have that kind of history. Well, you understand, someone who is an Israelite can look back into the Old Testament and say, that's my history. That's my people there. I can't say that physically. But you know what? I can say it by faith. I can say it by faith. Turn over, if you would, just a couple pages to the book of Ephesians. And I want you to see this in chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11 says this, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. Listen, in this time that the Bible is written, you had two groups of people in most people's mind, the Jews and the Gentiles. Israel, everybody else. So when you, you read the word Gentiles, that means everybody else. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh or near by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man. So making peace, you understand, the blood of the cross puts down all racial barriers, all national barriers. Everyone needs to be saved, everyone can be saved, and the call is to all of the world to come to Christ to serve Him, to follow Him in His body. So you have these early churches made up of both Jews and Gentiles, which before this time was never thought of. But Christ broke down all that. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter where you come from or what language you speak. The gospel is for you. The church is for you. It's for all of men. And so those who were once far off, they didn't have this history now, because of Christ, can claim some things. 
Verse 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also ye are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. See, we are brought into that. So now I can look back to the Old Testament, and through faith and through Christ, that is now my history. Abraham is a father in the faith to me. Isaac and Jacob and the apostles and the prophets, through all of Scripture, by faith, I have been brought into that household. It's a blessed position that we too enjoy as His body. Israel has experienced all of these blessings, all of this working of God, And Paul's heart is heavy for him. There's a reason for that. And that's why I took time to outline this, to go through some of these things that they've experienced. Why is Paul's heart so heavy? Here's what I want to finish with. The blasphemy of Israel against God. We have the burden of Paul for Israel. We have the blessing of God on Israel. And I want to finish today with the blasphemy of Israel against God. It's not here in the text in Romans 9. It's already assumed. It's known by now. They have all of this history. All of this blessing. Christ born to them. The Scripture is all pointing to this. Clearly showing it could have been a seamless transition from the law to the church. God Himself who is blessed forever, Amen, comes in the flesh to them. And what do they do? They reject. Nope. Not you. We will not have this man to reign over us. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Let his blood be on us and on our children. Crucify him. Crucify him, they say. They rejected. Look in chapter 10 of Romans, if you would. Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. If they need to be saved, it means they're lost. Verse 2, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. They rejected Christ, the righteousness of God. You remember a couple minutes ago we quoted 2 Corinthians 5, He who knew no sin became sin for us. Let me tell you the second half of that verse, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We are made righteous by Christ. It's not our righteousness. It's not anything that we do. It's Christ's righteousness that is imputed or accounted to us as we believe. You want to be right with God? You start with Christ. And Israel said, nope. We'll do our own thing. 
Christ came to them proclaiming the kingdom, claiming to be the Messiah, proving it by Scripture, proving it by His works, proving it by His words, as the Bible says, undeniable and infallible proofs. And what did they say? Crucify Him. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. That's not just talking about the world, it's talking about Israel. He came to His own, and His own received Him not. Yes, some believed. But the nation as a whole denied Him. The leadership called Him a demon. You cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, or Satan. You are satanic. They denied Him as God, denied Him as Messiah. And in doing so, became an unbelieving nation. And they are today an unbelieving nation. They still, as a whole, reject Jesus. Oh, they have a zeal for God. They are very careful to keep the Torah. They are very careful to to ceremonially keep the laws. But without... Christ, the law does nothing. You cannot be saved by works. It is by grace through faith in Christ. Their history is dead without Christ. If they reject what it all means and what it all points to, Israel could have so much, so much more than any people on the face of the earth. But they will not. It's just as Jesus says to the Pharisees, you will not come to me that ye might have life. And this breaks Paul's hearts. It's exactly why he starts in on this. Okay, now listen. Here's where we need to connect the dots, okay? Yeah, Paul's got a broken heart. But understand why he's saying this. Why it matters. Think of all that's been written. Salvation by grace. And it's not of works. It's in Christ alone. And you have this new life in Him and the covenant walking with Him in the church. And you have a Spirit-filled life, a Spirit-led life. Sin has no dominion. Flesh has no power. If God be for us, who can be against us? What can separate us from God? What can separate us from God? Nothing, Paul says, right? Look at the end of Romans chapter 8. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 1-8 through in a nutshell. Then listen, how could God's elect chosen nation miss it? How could they fall away and end up totally separated from Him? And under the judgment of God. Did God force them to do that? Did He in eternity past say, you know what, there's going to come a time when I come to them in the flesh and I will not let them believe. I will blind their eyes. I will stop their ears. And they as a nation from then on until the restoration, getting into a little bit of future, Thousands and thousands and millions even will go to hell because I closed their eyes against Christ. Is that what God did? Is that your view of His sovereignty? 
Because if God be for us, who can be against us? And nothing separates us from Christ. If you take that view of Scripture, listen. How could they miss it all? How could they miss Christ and the promises and the blessings and end up separated? Because they chose to. They chose to. The only thing that can separate you from God is you. You understand that? There's no external force going to drag you away. It's you. It's me and my heart. Either we choose to accept or we choose to reject. Nobody else is going to be held accountable for it but us. And part of why Romans 9, 10, and 11 is here is to remind us of the importance of, the consequences of, and the severity of those choices. Listen, we've got to this day and age where we walk around like we've got God on a chain. Like He does what we say. We know some things, or maybe we don't, or maybe there's conviction, whatever the case is, but we do the wrong thing, and we know it. We make those choices knowingly, or we don't do what we should, and we know it, and what do we say? Nah, it's fine. God will understand. God will be okay with it. And He'll take me back. He'll have mercy. Who says? Who says? Do not presume on the mercy of God. He is under no obligation to do so. You know how many chances Esau got? One. You know how many chances Pharaoh got? One. And one was over and abundantly gracious and merciful. Now, if you're like me, you've gotten more than one chance. We walk around like we've got God on a string. God has every right as the sovereign king of heaven to say to us, fine, that's the way you want it, have it your way. He has done so. We'll see as we go along. He has done so. He does do so and he will continue to do so. So we ought to be careful the choices we make. Israel made this choice knowing all that they did and they suffered the consequences for it. They walked away when they knew better and Paul's heart is broken by their blasphemy. So let's take a couple things away from this. How about first we, we, we <laughs> learn to choose the right thing? Maybe you're in a position of blessing like Israel was. The promises of Scripture and all that it talks about, that's yours by faith, right? If you believe in Christ as Savior, there's some promises that are yours. There's some calls that are there for you to, to submit yourself to baptism and to, to serve in the church. And if you've done that, there's some promises that are ours, right? We are part of the body of Christ. We are part of His bride and we serve Him and we walk with Him. And there's some wonderful blessings that we have. We live in a very blessed position. Don't forfeit that because of foolish things. Yeah, we, we can do the same thing Israel did, can't we? 
Maybe we ought to yield ourselves in obedience to Him, to His righteousness. Listen, if you feel God leading your heart today or, or in any way that it might be, don't reject that. Don't walk away from that. Listen, yes, God is merciful. And it, like I said, if you're like me, He is called and He is convicted and He is led multiple times and He still does so. But let's be careful not to think that we are owed that because we are not. It may be that He might be gracious and continue to lead you, to continue to call and to convict you. But you understand that it may be that He might not call again and leave you to your choice. So why don't we choose to submit to Him? Thy will be done, Lord, whatever you want me to do. Lead me, help me, guide me. The second thing I'd like you to take away from the message is maybe how about a broken heart? How about a burden for those who reject? Are we too busy to care? You know, I, I think of the course of my own life, the schedule that I have. It's about to get crazier. And we can hustle and bustle from one thing to the next, right? We all do it. Our whole family is up at five and hit the door running. We're out, gone, and hustle and bustle. In the mix of all of that, what's important can get lost. We can get so focused on other things and schedules and deadlines and times and places that we forget the people that are around us. People that need Jesus. People that need to be saved before it's eternally too late. People that need to come into covenant relationship with Him. You see, you and I know. We know the blessing and the beauty of what we do. That's why we're here on a Sunday morning. That's why we're going to come back in the afternoon and why we, we come back on a Wednesday night. Because we know this is important and this is Awesome and and wonderful and beautiful. We know that. We've experienced that. And you also know those in your life, as I do in mine, who need it, don't we? Either they need to be saved and follow Him, or maybe they've walked away. But they need to hear from us. Maybe they've been presented with all the proof and Scripture has shown their sin and shown them Christ and Maybe we've even seen conviction in their heart and they walk away. Maybe hostile to it now. What do we do? Do we write them off? Oh well, I tried. Or do we mourn and weep for their hardness and pray and seek for an opportunity like Paul did? Pleading with them to listen or to return. I don't know what you may need in your life, but I know I need a broken heart more. I need a more tender heart to to truly let the eternity of people around me impact me. I can't save them. Paul knows that. He, He can't save anybody. Christ can. And he knows their need and the ability of Christ and his heart breaks. And listen, let me let me close with this thought. Paul didn't simply sit around and wallow in sorrow. 
No, quite the contrary. We know Paul's burden here. And the book of Acts, you know what it shows him doing? Every single chance he's got, he's reaching out. In the synagogues, in every city, in a public place, in private meetings, he pleads with and he reasons to Israel. Maybe even writing the book of Hebrews in anonymity later to try to get one last call to them. No, he's active with this burden. Maybe we ought to do the same. That's what I'm saying this morning. Maybe we need to have those conversations with people around us. Maybe we need to make those phone calls. Because I think when we truly understand the desperate condition of the lost one or the erring one, it moves our heart, which will move us to action. And if our heart is callous to that, because it can be easy to shut it off, right? If our heart has grown calloused to the eternal destinies of those around us, maybe we need to pray for a softening of it. Maybe we need uh, a burden. A burden for those around us. I know... For myself, I need to have a little bit more of this broken heart as Paul did. At the same time, not growing callous to the position that we have or careless to the position we have, but understanding the the grace and mercy wrapped in it and taking that to those around us. Maybe that's what we need to pray for this morning, a burden. Let's bow our heads. Father, come before you and I thank you for this day. Thank you for this word that is before us and the the things that it says, Lord. I pray for my own heart. It could get hard at times and callous, Lord, that I, I pray for a burden like Paul. That I would look around at those around me, whether it be those in my own family or those in my workplace or those in the community, wherever it may be, Lord, that I would see them as You see them, Lord. Precious. Lost. In need of Christ. And then my heart would break as Paul's did and that it would move me to action that I would reach out to those around about, Lord. I ask that You help us as a church to have that kind of a heart that we might be broken for the loss that we might ever point them to Your Son who died for our sins. Lord, I pray that You would use this message in any way that You see fit, Lord, and convict and lead as You see fit, and that in everything You might get the glory. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.